Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot Audio Ground School Podcast. Hey pilots, it's Nick. Sorry for interrupting. We'll get to the lesson here in a little bit, but I really, really think you'll want to hear this. We're introducing a brand new scholarship. It's going to be annual thing that we're going to combine with one of our $1,000 scholarships in the spring. So if you've been following us, you know that I do four $1,000 scholarships to members of our online ground school. You have to be in the online ground school and we do four $1,000 scholarships a year out of my own pocket. Now what I'm going to do is the one in the spring around springtime, I'm going to combine that with a crowdsource GoFundMe scholarship. So basically if you're in the online ground school and you applied to scholarship, our $1,000 scholarship, you're already eligible for this one. But if you're not in the online ground school and you want to have a chance to get a scholarship, all you have to do is you have to donate $10 to the GoFundMe for the scholarship, just $10. That's all you have to do. And then you have to fill out a small application. I'll put both those links in the show notes. And I've wanted to do something like this since I very started my first Instagram and Facebook helping student pilots. And I now finally have the platform of over 11,000 followers to be able to do that. So think about it. If we get 2,000 of just just 2,000 of the 11,000 followers to sign up to do $10, right? That's $20,000 that we can give away in scholarships. And here's the really cool part. I'm not going to take any of the money. I'm going to promote it for a month beforehand, all for free, and I'm going to give it all away. The only thing that's taken out is like 3% fee from GoFundMe, but I can't help that. So it's all going to go. And again, I'm going to combine it with one of our $1,000 scholarships. So I'll start it off with the first $1,000 donation. And then to apply, you either have to be in the online ground school or you have to donate $10. And let's see how high we can get that up. It's going to be the same deadline as the next $1,000 scholarship, which is May 14th. All right. Thank you for listening. Again, check the links out in the show notes. Welcome, welcome everybody to the Audio Ground School podcast. My name is Nick Smith and this is the podcast where I go through our Private Pilot Online Ground School content completely for free for you guys on any podcast app. So I hope you guys are enjoying it. Working hard on your studies. Last week we took a break because this is a lot of stuff you got to remember and it's good to take breaks. And so we took a break and we talked about the SR-71 Blackbird. We just had some fun and I got to geek out on the microphone. And so hopefully you guys enjoyed that too. If you haven't listened to that, it's pretty cool. It's amazing aircraft and a really cool badass story that we shared from one of the SR-71 pilots. 
All right, so today we're back to the lessons and we are in the online ground school on section seven fundamentals of aerodynamics. So if following along in the online ground school, you go to your dashboard, you go to my courses, you go to step one, online ground school, private pilot lessons, click on section seven fundamentals of aerodynamics. And we are gonna be on lesson eight, wake turbulence and ground effect. It's kind of a longer lesson. So I think we'll probably just hit that one. If we have some time, we might start on left turning tendency, but that is quite a bit of content as well. So that might also be its own episode. So we're going to do that. Lesson eight, wake turbulence and ground effect. Now, I want to mention this. I've mentioned it on previous episodes, but for fundamentals of aerodynamics, you got to understand the fundamentals if you want to understand the phenomena that we're going to start to talk about, like wake turbulence, ground effect, left turning tendency, adverse yaw, and density altitude. All these lessons coming up, you have to have the good, strong, fundamental baseline that we learned about in the first few lessons on forces of flight, lift, stalls, weight, thrust, drag, stuff like that. So if you haven't listened to those first basic important lessons, you got to go back and do those. And then the last thing I want to say is if, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do us a huge favor and help us out. You know, I'm not going to force you to, but it really does help us out get seen on these different podcast apps if you subscribe and give us a review. If you like the podcast, be really helpful. So thank you guys for doing that and thank you for listening. So without further ado, let's get started with lesson eight of section seven of the online ground school on wake turbulence and ground effect. Consider the swirling vortices coming off the wingtips that we discussed in the lesson for drag and more specifically induced drag. These same vortices are the cause of both wake turbulence and ground effect. Now, if you don't remember, pressure differential caused by the wings, by the airfoils on the wings above and below the wing, they cause this mixing of the two pressure systems, the low pressure and high pressure at the trailing edge and wing tips of the wing. And when these high pressure and low pressure air masses mix, they swirl and create these vortices. And the vortices have a net downwash, they propagate downwards and they contribute to drag and that's called induced drag. It's induced by lift, it's a byproduct of lift. So we're talking about these very same vortices here when we talk about wake turbulence. So again, the pressure differentials from above and below the wings cause air to travel outward upward and around each wingtip in a swirling motion or vortex that eventually turns downward and propagates below and trailing in aircraft. These vortices can affect other aircraft, especially if the aircraft generating them is large. The larger the aircraft, the more lift it needs and the larger these vortices. These wingtip vortices are also known as wake turbulence, and they are created by every aircraft, every single one that produces lift. Wake turbulence propagates off the wingtips and downward, creating a trailing wake as seen in this figure in the ground school. So we have a figure, it shows kind of a plane taking off, a big jet taking off, and then you can see the direction of spin of these vortices off the wingtip and how it propagates downwards behind the aircraft uh, through its path of flight. So if you are listening and you're in the online ground scope, click open this lesson so you can see a visual of what I'm talking about. The weight, speed, wingspan, and shape of the aircraft's wings determine the strength of the vortices. So weight, speed, wingspan, and shape of the aircraft's wings determine the strength of the vortices. They are highest in slow, heavy, and clean aircraft. When I say clean, I mean that there's no payloads attached to the wings. Payloads are things like, you know, weapons, if there's missiles on military aircraft, or external tanks carrying, you know, whatever, fuel usually, or something like that. There's nothing attached to the wings other than the engines, right? 
This happens to be the exact configuration of large passenger aircraft during a climb out. So private pilots must be well aware when taking off or landing after one of these aircraft because, right, they're heavy, they're full of all these passengers, they're clean, and they're slow initially as they climb out. Even turbine-powered private jets can cause considerable wake turbulence and should be avoided by those of us flying smaller aircraft. If caught in the wake of one of these vortices, the effect can cause your aircraft to roll violently and may lead to a crash. To avoid wake turbulence, a pilot should remember the following. When landing, a pilot should touch down before the rotation where the wheels lift off the ground point of a wake turbulence generating aircraft that has just taken off. Now we have a visual concept. We have a jet taking off. We see the spiraling vortices coming off of it and we show where you are wanting to land when you're landing behind an aircraft that's taking off. So it's a, it's a great visual representation. So go check that out in the online ground school. So again, when landing, a pilot should touch down before the rotation point of a wake turbulence generating aircraft that has just taken off. So again, when landing, a pilot should descend above the aircraft's approach path and touch down after the touchdown point of a wake turbulence generating aircraft that has just landed before them. So here we're talking about an aircraft that has just landed before us. What we want to do is we want to stay above their path right? Because these wake turbulence vortices propagate downwards below the aircraft. So if we stay above their flight path and land beyond where they touch down, we can completely avoid these wake turbulence vortices. And again, we have a visual picture of that shown in the online ground school. A possible mnemonic device for landing wake turbulence avoidance can be lateral bar. Now I came up with this one myself. I'm a huge believer in whatever works for you for these mnemonic devices. So lateral bar is L-A-A- T-L-B-A-R, land after aircraft touchdown and land before aircraft rotation. So lat o bar land after aircraft touchdown, land before aircraft rotation. So that is when you're landing. When taking off, a pilot should rotate, that means when wheels come off the ground, at a point before the point of rotation and climb out above the climb out path of a wake turbulence generating aircraft that has just taken off before them. So again, we have a big wake turbulence generating aircraft taking off before us, but now instead of landing, we are taking off. So when we take off, we want to take off and rotate before the point where they rotated and then stay above their path of climb out. Again, these vortices, they generate downwards below the path that the aircraft is flying. So we want to stay above that path. So that's basically what we're doing. We're rotating before point where they rotated and then we're staying above their path. And again, we have a visual example of this in the online ground school that shows clearly you and that little Cessna staying above the path. Then again, when taking off, a pilot should rotate wheels off the ground at a point after the touchdown point of a wake turbulence generating aircraft that has just landed. So a pilot should rotate at a point after the touchdown point of a wake turbulence generating aircraft that has just landed. So here we're talking about, again, we're still taking off, but we're taking off after a big jet has just landed. So these wake turbulence generating vortices, they take time to propagate down. So even after they landed, if we just go take off in their path as these vortices are coming down after they've landed, we're going to get hit by those vortices. So what we want to do is we want to take off, we want to rotate at a point after the touchdown point of a wake turbulence generating aircraft so that we can avoid those wake vortices. So again, we have a visual example of these. This is kind of one of the concepts where you need a visual example. It's kind of hard to really show 
And these visual examples are perfect to just show you, okay, oh, they're propagating downwards on that aircraft, so we want to stay over here. And it makes a lot more sense. So please go check that out. I also came up with a mnemonic device for remembering takeoff wake turbulence avoidance, and I call it TATI bar. So before it was like ladle bar, well now it's TATI bar, and it's takeoff after aircraft touchdown and takeoff before aircraft rotation. So T-A-A-T-T-B-A-R, takeoff after aircraft touchdown and takeoff before aircraft rotation. The next thing I wanna talk about is wake turbulence and winds. The vortices of wake turbulence are affected by winds just as an aircraft is affected by winds. If in the presence of a crosswind to your left, a pilot can expect the vortices of large aircraft to be pushed to the right, literally pushed by the wind. So these vortices, these swirling columns of air, right? These swirling vortices coming down. If there's a wind pushing it to the left or right, they will actually move to the left or right. And you have to be cognizant of that as a pilot. When winds are heavy, the wake turbulence doesn't linger near the runway for very very long because the wind pushes it away. When winds are light, the vortices stay around longer. Here is a quick summary of how winds affect the position of wake turbulence. So when landing after a heavy aircraft and in a tailwind, so one, you probably will rarely be landing in a tailwind, but let's say that you are. Pilots should expect vortices to be pushed further up the runway, meaning you should aim to land not only past the larger aircraft touchdown point, but even further if able. When landing after a heavy aircraft in a headwind, so this is the most common situation because we're usually landing in a headwind. Pilot should expect vortices to be pushed towards the start of the runway and therefore can expect to be safe aiming at the point of the larger aircraft's touchdown. So that's why we say touchdown after the point that they touched down because if we're usually landing in a headwind and that headwind is going to push the vortices even further upstream of the runway that we're landing on. When landing after a heavy aircraft in a crosswind, because there are two vortices, one from each wing, a crosswind generally blows one of the vortices directly onto the center line of the runway. And a pilot should expect to meet the crosswind and expect to avoid it by landing beyond the heavy aircraft's touchdown point. So this is one of the things that makes this even more dangerous. If there's a light crosswind, it's going to push one of those vortices from that big aircraft directly onto centerline, right where you're aiming. So that's why it's very important that you aim beyond where that aircraft touched down, beyond that path of the vortice to completely avoid you know, this vortice being pushed by the wind right onto where you're landing. Again, this is just describing how winds can affect these things. It does not change the wake turbulence avoidance procedures that we already talked about, you know, ladle bar and tati bar. Those two mnemonic devices and the avoidance procedures that they talk about will cover you for all these situations. This is just helping you understand, and you might get a question asked by your examiner or FAA written, how the winds can affect these and what even more dangerous conditions they, they can create if you do not follow those wake turbulence avoidance procedures. All right, so now we talked about when landing after heavy aircraft. What about taking off after a heavy aircraft? Well, again, in a tailwind, if you were for some reason doing that, pilots should expect vortices to be pushed further up the runway, meaning you should aim to rotate as normal before the heavy aircraft's rotation point. So you want to do it earlier, the better, because those vortices are going to be pushed down the runway in a tailwind. When taking off after a heavy aircraft in a headwind, pilots should expect vortices to be pushed towards the start of the runway. And this is, again, the most common situation. 
and therefore should aim to rotate even sooner than the heavy aircraft's rotation point. So the sooner the better. Yes, the, the lateral bar, the tati bar, it still works. The mnemonic device still works for that avoidance. But if you have a strong headwind, you'll want to think about, hey, okay, they rotated. There's a strong headwind. So those vortices might be pushing towards me that you can either take off even sooner, as soon as possible. Or what you can do and what I would do is if it's a really big jet and a strong headwind and you're really worried about that, ask for more time. <laughs> Just ask, say you're unable, you're uncomfortable to the controller because of the vortices and you want to wait time for those vortices to dissipate. You may not have that option if you're taking off behind a bunch of large aircraft, but at least tell them and they may say, okay, we'll let you wait another minute or two. Those controllers are usually looking out for the, these things as well, but you don't want to rely on that as a pilot. So they should be timing it such that you don't get into that situation. But again, you're the pilot in command, so you need to know that this stuff as well. And then finally, in a crosswind, when you're taking off after a heavy aircraft in a crosswind, because there are two vortices, again, one from each wing, a crosswind generally blows one of the vortices directly onto the center line of the runway, and a pilot should expect to meet the crosswind and expect to avoid it by taking off well before the heavy aircraft's rotation point. So again, you just want to take off well before, especially in a headwind or a crosswind, because again, expect a more dangerous condition with those winds keeping or pushing those vortices directly in your path. The most dangerous wind condition for landing aircraft is actually a light quartering tailwind. Because the light wind keeps the vortices around the runway longer, the quartering crosswind pushed one of the vortices into the centerline path and the tailwind pushes the vortice further up the runway. Let me repeat that. The most dangerous wind condition for landing aircraft is a light quartering tailwind because the light wind keeps the vortices around the runway for longer. The quartering crosswind pushes one of the vortices into the centerline path and the tailwind pushes the vortice further up the runway. So it's, it's like the wind is almost just trying to keep that vortice right on the centerline for as long as possible. So that's a light quartering tailwind. Now I'm going to put a video in the show notes for this. And in that video, I actually show some visual aids that sort of are on a bonus to what we've already talked about, where in a situation where you might have runways that are parallel. Okay, so you have to think about that as well. Let's say you have runway 32 left and runway 32 right. These are two runway parallels. So you might have a large aircraft landing on one runway and you're landing on the other runway. But if there is a crosswind, it could be pushing those vortices onto your runway. So that's another thing to think about. And I talk about that in that video lesson. So check it out. I'll put that again in the show notes for you guys. Now that kind of sums up, kind of ends our discussion on wake turbulence. So we're going to move on now to ground effect, but we're going to do that after a quick break. Hey pilots, this is Nick again. Did you guys know that Part-Time Pilot now has a private pilot test prep book that you can buy on Amazon? It's a physical book that you can buy on Amazon to help prep for your FAA written exam. So it's like the other test prep books out there, you know, the Jepson, Asa, or the Gleam, Glime, however you pronounce it. It's just like those but I called ours the ultimate private pilot test prep because not only does it give you a synopsis of each subject like the cliff notes like those other books do and then it gives you FAA written questions to practice and quiz yourself on to, to prep for the test but it also goes 
much, much further. And that's why we call it the ultimate private pilot test prep book. So for each subject, it also has a QR code so that as you're reading it, you if you want more information, you can scan the QR code on your phone or your tablet and it will immediately pull up a YouTube video that you can watch on the subject. There's also QR codes in there for additional downloads in, including FAA, PDFs, subject area checklists, and more PDFs for, from us that you can download for free. It also includes a coupon code and QR code where you can go enroll in online practice tests for free and receive the PDF version of the book completely free. All that is with Q, simple, easy to use QR codes inside the book. And then we also, not only does it have the cliff notes of all the information, but it also includes mnemonic devices and visual aids, such as diagrams, tables, and images that are labeled, such as like a METAR that is labeled every single thing that is included and deciphered in the METAR or a TAF. Also the performance charts, step-by-step -step labeled steps on performance calculation charts. So it's not just cliff note bullet points, it's that plus much, much more, these visual aids, all in 404 pages in the Ultimate Private Pilot Test Prep book, and it is only $37. So you can go check that out on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes, so go check it out. Hi, this is Bree from Part-Time Pilot. There is no better way to wake up in the morning of a flight than with clear skies and a cup of hot, delicious coffee. And there is no better coffee than coffee straight from Nicaragua. And there is no better coffee for pilots than twin engine coffee. That's why I bought a custom pod for my Keurig and Nespresso machines and a coffee grinder just so that I could grind my own fresh Nicaraguan coffee beans from Twin Engine Coffee. It's so much better than those stupid K-cups or K-pods or whatever you call them. But right now you're probably like, why are you telling us about coffee? Well, it's because not only is it aviation-themed coffee straight from Nicaragua, but it's also coming from a great cause. Rather than taking all of the coffee beans out of Nicaragua to package and sell elsewhere, Twin Engine Coffee is headquartered in Nicaragua where they have created jobs for local community and have a mission to help reduce local poverty. So if you're a pilot and you like coffee, head over to TwinEngineCoffee.com PTP or with the link in the show notes to order fresh whole bean Nicaraguan coffee straight to your home today. Okay, welcome back. Now let's talk about ground effect. The same vortices that contribute to induced drag and the same vortices that contribute to wake turbulence can also aid an aircraft. When an aircraft is close enough to the ground, the net downward flow of air, or downwash, that we like to call it, from the wingtip vortices is reduced because the vortices are being dissipated or destroyed by contacting the ground. This means less downwash and less induced drag. So when you're close enough to the ground, these vortices swirl down, they propagate downwards 
lands below your aircraft, but then they hit the ground and they get destroyed. That sucking force from the vortices is destroyed at the ground, and it actually means that that those vortices are pulling down on your aircraft. That remember we talked about an induced drag. It's almost like your aircraft is carrying like a weight. That weight is reduced because the ground has taken up, you know, and said, "Hey, I'll hold on to some of that weight for you." And that's what's happening in ground effect. Less induced drag means more net upward lifting action on your aircraft. So if you've had any flight lessons and you come down, and especially if you're a little bit too fast on your landing, you're coming down on your approach, and your aircraft kind of buoys up a little bit, right? When you get real close to the ground, that is because you're getting a quick little jolt of extra lift because the ground effect is occurring. The ground is dissipating those vortices under your wings when you get real close and you're getting a net boost in lift and you kind of buoy up a little bit when you get close to the ground. So that is what you're feeling when that happens. So that's pretty cool to know what that, what's going on. And we have a visual of this. We have an aircraft in the ground school. So the vortices swirling off and how it's got a net downwash that's pretty big. And then when you have that ground, we show how it kind of dissipates and how that net downwash is much smaller in ground effect. So ground effect as a general rule doesn't come into effect until you are about a height above ground equal to your aircraft's wings. So if your aircraft has a wingspan of 20 feet, you won't feel the any aid of ground effect until you are 20 feet or lower above ground. So you're at a above ground level of 20 feet or lower. That's when you're going to start to feel it if your aircraft's wingspan is about 20 feet. Now this is just a guesstimation. And again, because these vortices, you know, the bigger your aircraft, the bigger your wings, the bigger your wingspan, the bigger your vortices. So it kind of works with that. So again, it's about equal to your wingspan when you start to feel it. However, as you get closer and closer to the ground during a landing, the effect increases because the vortices are dissipated earlier and earlier and they can't pull down on the aircraft as much. Thus, there's less induced drag and it gets less and less the closer you are to the ground. This is why low wing airplanes experience more ground effect than high wing aircraft do during landing because the wingtips are closer to the ground. The wings are actually closer to the ground on those low wing aircraft. So you're going to dissipate sooner and earlier are these vortices and you're going to get more ground effect. At a height above ground equal to the length of your wingspan, ground effect starts to reduce the induced drag effect, about 5% of total induced drag on the aircraft, giving the aircraft more net lift. So it starts to reduce the induced drag effect by about 5% at a distance above the ground equal to your wingspan. At a height above ground equal to half the wingspan, ground effect reduces induced drag by about 10 to 20%. At a height about a quarter of the wingspan, so again, if your wingspan is 20 feet, this would be five feet above the ground. Ground effect reduces induced drag by about 30%, and then a height above ground equal to one-tenth of the wingspan, so that would be two feet in our example of a 20-foot wingspan. Ground effect reduces induced drag by about 50 to 60%. And we have a visual representation of this where we show an aircraft with a 20-foot wingspan, 20 feet above the ground, 10 feet above the ground, five feet above the ground, and two feet above the ground, and we talk about and show how ground effect is reduced in each of those situations. But even a 10% reduction in an induced drag, which is when you're just about a height of half your wingspan or maybe even a little bit more, just a 10% reduction in induced drag can allow an aircraft to be airborne at an airspeed two to three knots less than its normal flying airspeed. So if you have an airspeed, you know, a normal flying airspeed of say 60 knots, then ground effect can keep you flying at a airspeed when you're just, let's say again, where we have a 20 knot wing or 20 foot wingspan. So if you're just 10 feet above the ground and get that 10% reduction, you can get airborne two to three knots 
lower than your normal airborne airspeed, your rotation speed. If it's your rotation speed is 60, you can actually take off and get airborne at 57, 58 knots. Pilots should be aware of ground effect during both takeoff and landing. During landing, the decrease in induced drag means that any excess speed on your landing approach and flare will cause considerable floating. So I kind of mentioned this again, and this is something that the FAA written asks about, so I'm going to repeat this. During landing, the decrease in induced drag means that any excess speed on your landing approach and flare will cause considerable floating. If too much excess speed at flare, the floating caused by ground effect can make it extremely difficult to land and a go around is your best bet because you may run out of runway. In takeoff, ground effect is most likely to result in becoming airborne before reaching recommended takeoff speed. So again, I want to repeat that because that might be asked on your FA written. In takeoff, ground effect is most likely to result in becoming airborne before reaching your recommended takeoff speed. Because again, we talked about you have this ground effect, it's dissipating the vortices, and you can now take off there's less induced drag, so you have a little bit of bump in lift, and you can actually take off before your rotation speed. And if you stay in ground effect, you can continue to fly in that ground effect. So if you take off a little bit early, right, so a few knots early, and then stay at 10 feet or, or lower above the ground, you can continue to fly at that lower airspeed until you speed up. And then once you get to your rotation speed, then you can fly up and out of ground effect. And this is actually used as a technique during soft field landings to get off the ground and finish your takeoff roll in ground effect. So it can actually be used depending on the short field takeoff that you might be doing. Let's say you have you don't have obstacles that you need to climb out of the way of, but you have a short runway after the runway is a bunch of unsteady rocks or something, you know, you might be able to fly above the rocks in ground effect and then take out. I'm not advising this. I'm just saying these are techniques that are used in sometimes a lot in like bush pilots in Alaska and stuff like that. And then on soft field takeoffs, when you really want to keep that weight off the nose wheel and you want to get off the ground as soon as possible so you're not getting stuck in the mud or something, you want to take off again, like I said, as soon as possible. So you want to use that ground effect to get off the ground and then fly five to 10 feet above the ground to speed up before you then take off. So effective ground effect is actually used as techniques by pilots to take off a little bit earlier. All right, so that has been ground effect and wake turbulence. I also have a video on ground effect, which I will put that link in the show notes for you guys. And then we've talked about a bunch of visual aids and mnemonic devices and sort of diagrams that really help with this sort of stuff. And then I mentioned before, if you felt lost in this, it's because you need to go back to the lessons on lift and drag and all those things, because it's going to give you the fundamental understanding you need to know to understand these phenomena. So if, if you're confused and you hadn't listened to those episodes yet, go back and listen to those episodes and then watch the videos here in the show notes. And then if you're not following along in the ground school, I highly recommend you do because it's got all this stuff in one place. You can listen to the lesson, you can watch the videos, you can see the mnemonic devices, the diagrams, the visual aids, the step-by-step examples, and then you can take the quiz. So it's interactive, aids to any learning style, and can really help you no matter what learning style you are. I, for one, like to listen or read something to learn it. My wife, on the other hand, she listens to videos. She's like, hey, watch this video to understand something we're trying to figure out. And I'm just like, let me just find an article on it and read about it because that's just how I learn. And everybody's different. And so that's the goal with Part-Time Pilot is to cater to you no matter what learning style 
you have. You don't have to watch the video. You don't have to read it. You don't have to listen to it, but you got to do one of them, obviously, but you have that option with part-time pilots. So that's the goal that we're trying to achieve. And so hopefully we do that for you. And thank you guys for listening. Hopefully this has been an enlightening episode. And if not, if you have any questions, please hit us up team at parttimepilot.com or you can hit us up on Instagram at part period time period pilot. We're also on TikTok, unfortunately. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we are on TikTok. It's the same thing at part period time period pilot. And then we have our Facebook groups and our Facebook page. So check us out on the social medias or send us an email if you have any questions. All right. Thank you guys. And I'll talk to you guys next week. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot now of course it's not that we're not thinking but it's that we understand things like weather aerodynamics what our instruments are telling us what atc is telling us we have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them and when we don't have to think about them we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations if we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with atc for bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft they start making mistakes and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again and they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings 
until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job we have kids, we have family, we have school, we have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices. Have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts the way we explain things in plain written English and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.